Well, believe it or not, we are still in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to take another four, well, actually another um, six verses this time because we have a little reiteration at the end. We're going to continue to look at what Jesus says the blessed life consists of and the one that he calls blessed. We've talked about how what he's doing is he's setting a proper expectation for his disciples of what it means to be his followers and that his disciples will be grounded in these principles of poverty and grief and submission and famine. We looked at those as the place that blessedness is going to take root in our first session But I want you to think for a second how the disciples would have heard these words once again, that typically when it comes even to our faith, we can be very transactional. We want to know what's the action point, what should I do? And there's no doubt that when the disciples sat down to hear Jesus expound on what the kingdom of heaven was going to be like, probably what they were thinking he would begin with is, all right, here's the plan. And instead, what does he lead off with? Not, this is what we will do, but this is who we will be. He doesn't begin with the transactional. He begins with the relational. And what's interesting is this is a pattern that we see elsewhere. When we get to the Lord's Prayer, you'll see a similar thing. He begins with that relational component and not just any relational component, but how does the Lord's Prayer open? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we get that vertical alignment, right? That relationship gets straightened out first. And then how does it change? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. So it shifts from the vertical plane to the horizontal plane. How are we going to live among others? Which is the same thing that we see with the Ten Commandments, if you think about that. The Ten Commandments, the first four, what are they doing? They're orienting us rightly toward God. You will have no other gods before me. You won't make graven images. We will use our words in ways that are pleasing to the Lord. Um, And so all of those things will honor the Sabbath because that rightly orients us to the Lord. And then we shift to our relationships with one another. Don't murder, don't steal, don't covet, don't commit adultery. So this pattern that gets established of relational rightness is what will determine what we do. And if you think about it, the things that we do are always a product of who we are. You and I are very concerned with the decisions that we make. We think that the decision point is the most important place to get to, that it's the critical moment. But God can work with any decision that we make. Like we have a sense of, this is the fork in the road, and if I go this way, I could be outside the will of God, and if I go this way, I will be inside the will of God. And yet the Lord looks down on us, and because he is relational before he is transactional, he is far more concerned with the decision maker than he is with the decision itself. And if we regarded our lives a little differently and we recognized that actually whatever decision we make, the Lord can sanctify us on the other side of it, we might think of our decision points a little differently than we do. So the disciples are going to have before them any number of difficult circumstances and decisions that they will face as followers of Christ. And Jesus begins not with, here's your decision tree on how to navigate difficult circumstances or decision times. He instead begins with, this is who you must be. And he says that they are to understand poverty of spirit, but it's important to understand why. Remember what we said? Because those who understand their poverty of spirit are ready to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
the one that Jesus will later tell his disciples it is better that they would have than to be in his physical presence. When he tells them that he's leaving, what does he say? He says, I'm leaving, but it is better because I'm going to send the counselor and the counselor is going to reveal all truth to you. So those who are poor in spirit are ready to receive that spirit and it is by the spirit that we begin to be sanctified. And so when we feel grief, it is not grief that leads to despair. It is grief that actually leads to comfort and hope because we know that grieving is the first step to turning away from a sin. If you have any childhood memories like this, or maybe as a parent, if you ever saw your kids do this kind of thing, when a child has committed a crime and you say, that was very bad that you did that. Now, I think you know that that was wrong, don't you? And they look at you and sort of robotically say, yes. And you say, what do you need to do? I need to apologize. Okay, well, I would like to hear that now. And what do they do? I am sorry that I hit my brother. I will not do it again. (laughs) And you say, all right, thank you. And we move on. But what are you looking for? You're looking for the day when unprompted that child comes and breaks down because they felt grief over what they did. Because what do you know at that point? All right, this is the turning point. This is where they've owned what's happened and they're less likely to do the same thing again because they're now taking ownership of it. And that's the kind of grief that we're talking about here. It is a hopeful grief. We are not those who grieve without hope, we often say at funerals. And at the funeral of a sinful behavior of all places, we feel hope that we are growing in our sanctification by the power of the Spirit. And it is by the Spirit that we learn to submit our wills to the will of the Father. Because in and of ourselves, we would not do so. We would set ourselves in opposition to Him at every turn. Because we believe that if God is asking us to do something that we don't want to do, that He has asked us to do it because He wants to withhold good from us. Isn't this the story of Adam and Eve in the garden? Staring at the fruit on the tree and thinking, God is holding out. He doesn't want me to have everything good. But those who recognize their poverty of spirit and who have grieved over their sin have lost that starry-eyed sense of my way is the best way. And they begin to understand that God withholds no good thing from us and that anything that he withholds from us is not good for us. So we begin to be willing to submit ourselves to his will. And then that hunger and thirsting for righteousness, it is only by the Spirit indwelling us that we begin to develop better appetites. Why? Because the Spirit is speaking truth to our innermost parts. So whereas before we hungered and thirsted for those things that were not actually good for us, now the Spirit is revealing something to us that we didn't see before. Sort of my classic illustration for this, does it translate culturally? You know what Cheetos are? Cheese puffs? Are those Irish too? Okay, and they're amazing. And I love them. I love them so much, and I would eat them until my tongue was lacerated and my fingers were stained orange, and I did not care if there was anything bad to know about them. And my relationship to the Cheeto was long and happy for many years until someone decided to start listing all of the ingredients and everything on the back. And I remember turning over that package and reading through the ingredients and thinking to myself, it feels like there ought to be cheese listed here. (laughs) 
So what happens once you see that? You can't unsee that, right? And so the Food and Drug Administration spoke a word of truth into my spirit, and I could no longer love and crave the thing that I loved and craved before. So I quit eating Cheetos completely in that instant, except that I didn't. It took time for my behaviors to catch up to what I now knew to be true. I had to fully learn to hate the Cheeto. This would be such a great illustration if I told you that I still never ate them. But ever since I started using this illustration, when I travel, I will get to my hotel room and find that my gracious host has provided me a giant bag of Cheetos. I think, well, good grief, what if I told you I was an alcoholic? What would you have put in my room? So Jesus is more concerned with the starting point of who we are because he knows that who we are is what will drive what we do and that he intends for us to be transformed by the power of the Spirit. And so if the first session made you a little uncomfortable, I want to say I'm sorry, but I also want to say just lean into the discomfort a little. Just lean into it a little because we have to have moments of self-awareness. So I have this... I have this distinct memory. I told you that I had four children in four years, and that's not normative behavior where I live either. And so I was in, the, in this house in the suburbs where people have two children, and there's a reasonable amount of children, and, and where they are able to drive cars of reasonable size and, and have grocery bills of reasonable size. And so I had a neighbor, um, Shara, she lives next door. We're still friends, and um, she always was clothed in her right mind. She had like matching outfits and her hair was fixed and she had that kind of figure that looked like maybe she had adopted her children because she was so (laughs) lovely and slender and her children never had stuff smeared on their faces and they, you know, could quote things from books they had read. And then there was us where I just kept popping out these babies and everyone was polite about it, but they weren't really wanting to make eye contact all the time. And as I mentioned, it, was, it did not always feel safe for us to leave the house. I mean, I couldn't, in parking lots and things like that, we just weren't, we weren't a safe crowd. I was the only adult, and they were all very small. Or we, as you would say, many we Wilkins. And uh, I always wanted to name one of my boys Will, but my husband said everyone would call him Wee Willie Wilkins, so we couldn't do it. <laughs> Loved that name. Where was I? Oh, okay, so the... Um, the most exciting part of our day at this early stage of life where the kids were four, three, two, and zero was to go get the mail in the afternoon. And, and we lived in a neighborhood where the mailboxes were not in front of our houses. You had to go around the corner to like a bank of, of boxes. And so it was just maybe, maybe a half a block to get there. But by the time I got everybody dressed and saddled up on some wheeled vehicle to get there, it was, a, it was like a major way to fill time before nap time, or actually it was right after nap time. And, you know, I, I, um, I like to think of myself as a patient person, and I, I am generally, but the mail came at four, 
And so by then my patients could be a little worn down. And I remember what would happen is each day we would make this sort of freakish caravan where we would um, get Matt would be on his little tricycle and then he's the four-year-old and then the three-year-old Mary Kate would be on her little tricycle it was a little bit smaller and then the two-year-old on the little scooty car and then I would have Calvin the baby in the stroller and we would just wheel our way over to the mailbox but Mary Kate had developed a habit of taking all of her tiny little babies because remember she's the mama and she would jam them into a little baby stroller that she had, and then she could hook the wheels of the baby stroller over the back of the, the tricycle, and she could pull the babies along behind her little tricycle. She's just pedaling like this. And the problem was she would put too many little, little stuffed things in there, right? And so we would be going across the, the cul-de-sac in front of our house, and a baby would fly off. And she would, we'd have to stop and get out, and she'd jam the baby back in, and we'd go a few more steps, and then another baby would fly off, and, and she'd get out and jam it back in. And I remember on this particular afternoon, I just couldn't take it anymore. <clears throat> and I got down in her face, and I said, Mary Kate, you know what the problem is. You just have too many babies. And it is at that precise moment that I hear my lovely neighbor, Shara, on the sidewalk say, well, I think you're going to have to give her a break there, because that's the pot calling the kettle black. I had a moment of self-revelation. I thought, this is how I look to everyone I know. Too many babies. Moments of self-revelation are not always welcome in the moment, but they're necessary. They're necessary. It's necessary for us to sort of take an accounting of where our lack is so that we can move forward by the power of the Spirit into fullness of joy and into full life, to the life of blessedness that Jesus describes. So as we see with the Ten Commandments and with the Lord's Prayer that begin with the vertical relationship, our relationship with God, and then turn to the horizontal, we should not be surprised to find that the Beatitudes follow a similar pattern. And so in the first four that we have covered, what were we looking at? We were looking at how we are rightly related to the Lord. So guess what happens? We move from rooting blessedness in our relationship to our Heavenly Father to now seeing how blessedness is going to bear fruit in the way that we relate to one another. So look at the shift that happens there in verse number 7, chapter 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Obviously, mercy is something that we don't direct toward our Heavenly Father. He doesn't need mercy from us. This is the way that we interact with those around us. And so now Jesus is going to describe for his disciples what it looks like for someone who has gone through these first four steps of blessedness to now live in community with other people. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This idea of mercy is one that we can have a little difficulty understanding if we don't back away and give it a solid uh, definition. So we might think it just means to be forgiving. But I think in order to nail down what mercy is, it's important for us to nail down basic definition of what justice is, right? Because 
what Jesus' disciples are expecting him to say is, blessed are the just, blessed are those who rule with an iron scepter. They're, remember, they're expecting Jesus to come and overturn all existing powers and to assume a throne. And that's not done by extending mercy. That's by bringing justice on our adversaries. This is an unexpected statement. Why? Because justice is getting what you deserve. And mercy, by contrast, is not getting what you deserve. Now, the third paired word or triplet in, this, in, these, in these terms is grace. So justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you do not deserve. Did you catch that? Grace is getting what you do not deserve. And so what is he saying here? He's saying, blessed are the merciful. So what changes us from people who cry out for justice to people who cry out for mercy? Well, I would just note, first of all, that this is not saying that we ought not to advocate for justice for our fellow human beings. We absolutely should. But what Jesus is pointing to here is, again, a fruit of these things that have come before. And so our base instinct when someone wrongs us is to do what? To cry for justice on our own behalf. We want justice to be served in even the smallest offenses. Unless we're the person who has walked through these previous steps. Because what does the person who has walked through these previous steps in the first four Beatitudes become very aware of? That if I cry for justice for myself as it relates to that vertical relationship, what will I receive? Death. But what have I received? I've received new life. I did not get what I deserved. In fact, I got what I did not deserve. I got grace. So he calls blessed those who are merciful. And what does he say? He says, they shall receive mercy. And we read that, and I think we can get a little wrapped up in that and say, wait a minute, does that mean that God will only give mercy to me insofar as I am merciful to other people? Well, no, I mean, not strictly speaking. I mean, I think there is a relationship between the amount of mercy that we extend to others and our recognition of how much mercy we have received. But we cannot say that what this verse is teaching is that God will only give mercy to those who show mercy. Why? Because if that were the case, mercy would cease to be mercy. If God only gave mercy to those who show mercy, he would be acting justly, not mercifully. He would be giving us something that we deserve, and mercy is by definition undeserved. But I do think what is being said in this relationship here is that we will show mercy to others in a measure that relates to our own understanding of how much mercy we have received at the hands of God. So for those of us who our primary struggle is with legalism, can I get a witness? Just me? Thanks for leaving me out to dry. What is my problem? Why am I a legalist? Why is that my tendency? Because I actually still think I'm better than most people. 
I still think I'm doing okay. I'm still measuring myself against the person sitting next to me instead of against a transcendent God. And I'm like, oh yeah, I may be a sinner, but I'm not as big a sinner as that person. So I will be slow to grant mercy because I grow forgetful of my own need for mercy. But the more aware we are of our own need for God's mercy, the more we will show mercy to others. The dictionary defines mercy as compassion, which forbears punishing even when justice demands it. Even when justice demands it. Those who are blessed in the kingdom of heaven bear the fruit of compassion. And think about how many examples we have in the scriptures of holy men of God who demonstrated mercy to others. If you remember the story of Abraham and Lot in Genesis, and Lot is such a dirty dog. He keeps, you know, the the text says, I mean, he's just always kind of like right next to a bad thing and always kind of like working his way a little closer and a little closer. But every bad thing that befalls Lot Abraham would have been fully within his rights to say, you brought this upon yourself. You pitched your tent toward Sodom. And then the next scene, we saw you sitting at the gates of Sodom. You weren't just leaning toward it. You had taken up residence there, and you apparently were sitting on the town council. And yet, what does Abraham do? He intercedes for Lot. He intercedes for Lot because at the point that Lot needs him to extend mercy to him, Abraham has already been the recipient of a great deal of mercy from God himself. After going into Egypt and telling Pharaoh that his wife was his sister, one of my top creepy stories in the Old Testament. So we see Abraham model this with Lot. And then think about the story of Joseph later on in the book of Genesis. Joseph of the famed coat of many colors, and he is sold into slavery by his very own brothers. And of course, then he ends up ruling over all of Egypt. And when the brothers come to him, not knowing who he is because there's been a famine, he would have been fully within his rights, within the realm of justice to say to them, I owe you nothing and send them away empty-handed. But he has mercy on them. Why? Because he understands that the God that he serves is a merciful God. He wants to be like that God in the way that he deals with others. So he forgoes justice and he demonstrates mercy. How about that whole scene with David and Saul in the cave, that super weird scene where David has the chance to kill Saul and he has every reason to want to kill Saul at this point and yet he spares him? Mercy is not just undeserved. It is frequently unsought, but granted anyway. I mean, this is the story of our salvation. Did we go looking for Christ? Did we say, you know what I need? I need someone to raise me from spiritual death. No. Like Abraham, completely unconscious at the administration of the Abrahamic covenant, we were raised to newness of life when we were dead in our sins. Mercy was extended to us when we did not seek it. It was granted anyway. 
And that's the thing I think that we have to rehearse in our heads, right? Because what do we want to do? We want to defend ourselves. We want to defend our own sense of personal justice. And is our own sense of personal justice even always that reliable of a barometer? I mean, to be honest, we're very good at advocating for ourselves. If we were as good at advocating for our own rights, if we were as good at advocating for the rights of others as we are for advocating for our own rights, think how different a place the world might be. We, as the followers of God, those who are called blessed in the kingdom of heaven, will extend mercy even when it is unlooked for. We will forgive our enemies before they ask and even if they never ask. Don't you have someone in your life who owes you an apology? And you've probably reached the point where you know it's never coming. So what will you do? What will you do as someone who is blessed? You know what I think all the time when I get that person in my head and I think about that apology that they owe me? There is someone to whom I owe an apology and I'm completely unaware. I think I have treated them awesomely. And they're carrying around a hurt for which I will never ask forgiveness. And I pray that they would act mercifully toward me. And the Lord has done so with me. Like, get this, this is a crazy thought. We can spend our lives repenting of our sins, right? And we understand that when we are saved, we are forgiven of every sin we could ever commit, past, present, and future. Like, because the Lord is omniscient, because he knows all things, you don't show up one day and commit a sin to which God says, Oh, I did not see that coming. You know what? That's a deal breaker. I'm sorry. I thought this was going to work out, but that, that came out of nowhere. The Lord never says that because he knows every single thing about you. You cannot surprise him. So mercy has been given to us for every sin we will ever commit. But let me ask you this. Do you think that even if you were a fastidious person about confession of your sin, do you think that you would go to your grave having confessed every single sin that you have committed? No, and the Lord forgives you, even though you do not seek forgiveness for every sin that you commit. The Lord forgives you freely and fully. And those who live the life of blessedness, those on whom the divine benediction rests, strive to treat others as they have been treated in the Lord. Mercy is not only undeserved, it is often unsought but granted anyway. Even when we have the opportunity to teach a lesson or to even the score, we forego it. And we choose mercy instead. Mercy is sympathetic. It identifies with the sufferings of others. We are not merely merciful to those who have wronged us. We are merciful to those who are in need. And we don't just look upon their sorrows and say, oh, I just feel so bad for them. We don't just empathize. We act. So we have to recognize that when we are offended, our first response is to cry for justice. But when I'm the one who has offended someone else, what is my first response? It's to cry for mercy. We have to change that. We have to ask the Holy Spirit to remind us of the great mercy that is ours in Christ. 
And in so doing, the blessed life begins to bear the fruit of compassion. But that's not where it stops. The blessed life will also bear the fruit of purification. Look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So purity of heart is the next thing that Jesus brings to mind with regard to how we are to relate to the world around us. So in contrast to being self-justifying, he pushes us to be merciful. In contrast to being self-deluded, oh, my sin is not that bad. He pushes us to become pure in heart, for they shall see God, pure in heart. Now here, although he has already taken some shots at the Pharisees up to this point, here he is hitting them dead on, because that word pure doesn't hit you and me the way that it would have hit a first century Jew. Because think of all of the laws that the Jews had for clean and unclean, for what was pure and what was impure. And think about Jesus' ministry, all of the things that he is going to do that are going to overturn their idea of why those laws were in place. He is going to reach out to those who are impure, to the woman. You remember the woman with the issue of blood? That's another one of my favorite stories that we never talk about in the scripture or rarely talk about. She makes him ceremonially unclean if he touches her, but he does not care. Jesus' concept of what it means to be pure versus impure is going to be a deeper understanding of what the law has taught. But the Pharisees were consumed with ceremonial cleanliness. And they were also believed to be the people who had the clearest vision of God. And so what is he saying here? It's those who are pure in heart who will see God. The Pharisees had a developing tradition during the first century that included 200 pages of treatises dealing with, among other things, ceremonial washings of vessels, tents, immersion pools, and hands, but not hearts. Not hearts. No concern for what was going on on the inside, only concern for what people were saying with their words and what people were doing with their hands. No understanding that our words and our deeds, as Jesus is pointing to, are always, always, always the overflow of what has happened in here. That it's who we are that determines what we will do. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to be pure in heart? Does it mean that we have to be sinless? I hope not. Think about the story of Isaiah in chapter 6, probably the most well-known chapter of Isaiah, where he has a vision of God high and lifted up. He sees God. Is he pure in heart? But what's his first response to seeing a vision of God high and lifted up? I'm so thankful that I'm pure in heart that I could have this vision of you, Lord. But what does he say? He says, woe is me, for I am undone. He pronounces a curse over himself. He does not say, blessed are the pure in heart. He says the opposite. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He is immediately aware that he is not pure. And in fact, I think this gets us closer to what Jesus is saying here. A person who is pure in heart is not sinless, 
the fact that they're even aware of the impurity of their hearts shows that they are becoming pure in heart. Jesus is going to say in a little bit later on in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your Father is perfect. Does he mean that we are to cease sinning entirely? He knows better than we do that that is an impossibility, this side of the new heavens and the new earth. But sanctification, the process of growing in holiness by the power of the Spirit, does mean that we increasingly desire holy things in place of unholy things those who are pure in heart. But how does this process happen? So this word pure, its figurative meaning as we see it interpreted here is to be unstained with the guilt of anything. We know that at the point of salvation, we are, it says in scripture, say, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. We receive purification through the shed blood of Christ. But the literal interpretation of this word pure means clean, purified by fire, like a vine cleansed by pruning, and so fitted to bear fruit. Did you hear that? A purification process that was used actually with grapevines to yield a harvest. They burn some of the early shoots off so that the later shoots would grow and bear fruit. Well, I think we can all identify with that. Has the Lord pruned you in any way that's made you more fruitful? How does this happen? The Lord allows difficulty to come into our lives, and because of those difficulties, we view a particular temptation in a way that we might not have before. So in my case, my parents divorced when I was eight years old. And I would say that even by any standards, that divorce was one of the least painful divorce situations that I've ever heard of. No one was unfaithful. My parents were even respectful of one another. As we grew up as children, they allowed us to have relationship with both parents. They never pitted one parent against the other or asked us to choose. But even under a best-case scenario divorce, if you can call it that, I walked into my adult life with a high view of marriage. And some, some people come out of a, a divorce background and they're afraid to even commit to marriage. But in my case, I didn't feel that. I just knew that my marriage was something I could never allow my own personal agenda to trump whatever it was that we shared in that marriage covenant. And so I married Jeff and he comes from this house where it was kind of like growing up with, this is another, I don't know if you'll know this, Warden June Cleaver, the beaver? No? The perfect 1950s household, okay? She's perfect, he's perfect. He comes home from his perfect job. She's wearing her perfect pearls. They sit down to a perfect meal. The things that go wrong are not big things. Everyone deals with them and moves on with their lives. And it was the perfect nuclear family. And that's kind of the household that my husband grew up in. So he walks into marriage with me, and I'm thinking, I don't even have a framework. I don't know what to look at to show me where the roadmap is. And he comes out of this very comfortable past with regard to marriage. And so we would be teasing each other about something and he would say, well, you better not do that or I'm going to divorce you. Which is just apparently a hilarious joke in his house. (laughs) And I finally had to say, hey, I need you to not joke about that for me. Because we were coming from different places, right? In his house, they all speak at a really high volume level. And in my house, that means someone's leaving and not coming back. So we had to bridge the gap there. 
But I'll tell you what, there was not a time of conflict in those early years of marriage that I thought, you know what, I'm going to insist on my way. We had a high value on compromise. Why? Because there had been a pruning effect on my life. I could count the cost accurately of when marriage doesn't go well. The Lord had purified my desire to elevate my own agenda above that of my husband's. There needed to be a place for compromise. Fiery trials and fiery consequences of our sin strip away the illusion that our own desires are a better choice than purity of heart. I mentioned earlier the example of having a serious illness and how it can cure materialism really quickly. You don't care about your stuff anymore. What's that saying? If you don't have your health, what do you have? We throw that around, but that's something that you learn in a different way when you face a life-threatening illness. So our desires, our heart is the seat of our desires, and it becomes purified by fiery trials or the fiery results, the consequences of our sins. Why do you think that the pure in heart, those who are being purified in their desires, why are those the ones who will see God? I would say it's probably because the purification process is going to strip away the sin that clouds our vision. Why do you think it is that Jesus in the incarnation is so attuned to his Father's will? Why do you think it is that he doesn't waver and doubt? Why do you think it is that he is so steadfast? If you think about it, he lived, you know, we talk a lot about his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, but have we really weighed the significance of those first 33 years of his life in which he never sinned? mind-boggling to me. You know what really blows my mind is that his, so like his brother James, his half-brother James apparently did not believe his message and was antagonistic toward him until after he sees the resurrected Christ. Which means, apparently, that you can grow up in the same house with a person who never sins and not pick up on it. How self-focused are we? so busy managing our own stuff that you could live with a person who doesn't sin and miss it. But there was not one single sin to cloud his vision of the Father. You and I have years, decades, layers of sin that have stood between us and a vision of who God is. Christ had none of that. Think how he must have seen God even in his humanity. He enjoyed perfect communion during this earthly life. What would that be like? What if we had even an incrementally better idea of what that was like? Because we asked the Holy Spirit to purify our hearts, to change our desires. How differently would we view ourselves? How differently would we view our neighbors in light of a higher vision for God? The life of blessedness bears the fruit of purification. But it does more than that. It also bears the fruit of reconciliation. Look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Not those who self-promote, not those who strive to make war on their own behalf and on their own agendas, but those who set aside self and make peace. Now, remember, the disciples had expected that Messiah would make war on their enemies. And here he has completely shut down any notion of that and said that those who are blessed are the ones who are peacemakers. Not only does he say that they are the ones who are blessed, but he says that they will be called the sons of God. So those who seek to make peace. And how do we make peace? Well, we have that vertical relationship and we have that horizontal relationship. Remember that? So we are peacemakers insofar as we give the gospel to other people to establish peace between them and God. And then we also strive to make peace between each other. We strive to find ways to be reconciled to one another as far as it is possible with us to live at peace with all people. Sometimes it's not that possible. But we keep striving for it. We understand that that is the ideal, that that is the goal. But also, we can confuse this sometimes. We can confuse blessed are the peacemakers with the idea of blessed are the peacekeepers. Peacekeepers are those who avoid conflict because they don't want to stir anything up. And oftentimes, the only way for peace to be reestablished is for whatever the conflict piece is to be addressed head on. So there's a difference between being a peacemaker and being a peacekeeper. Why is someone who is a peacemaker called the sons of God? Well, you may remember uh, other places in Scripture, like the two disciples who are called the sons of thunder, and that was a reference to their personalities. It said something about the, the way they interacted with people around them. They don't sound like they were quiet and reserved at all. What about other places in Scripture where people are called children of the devil, sons of the devil? So what is being pointed out here, Jesus is employing the same language form to say that you will be called the sons of God because a peacemaker so embodies the character of God in what they do. And of course they do because in Isaiah 9-6, Jesus is prophesied to be the prince of peace. Galatians tells us that he himself is our peace. And that he is the firstborn of many sons. So those who are peacemakers behave like that firstborn son. They point people toward the father. It does not say that we will be made the sons of God. It says that we will be called, we will be recognized as the children of God. In our peacemaking, we will be identified with him. The life of blessedness promotes peace and it bears the fruit of reconciliation. But that's not all it does. The life of the blessed also bears the fruit of identification. Look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can see now this little bookend statement to the the opening beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here we see, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus has now summarized this whole teaching in a little encapsulated space. 
And he's pushing back on the notion that those who self-preserve are blessed. And he's saying, no, guess what? It's those who open themselves up to not just the possibility, but the certainty of persecution. But why? For righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. Not just because you're a jerk. If people pick on you because you're not a nice person, that's not being persecuted. If people come at you because of the righteousness of Christ in you, that is persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I don't know about you, but I kind of wish we had just stopped at verse 9. I would have been great with that. But then Jesus is going to do something equally alarming for his disciples, and I would say for us too. He's going to repeat himself. This is another parenting principle. Why do we repeat things as parents? What are the, the things that your kids could recite to you or the things that you remember of your parents repeating to you all have to do with what your parents thought was most important? And they probably had to do with some danger of some kind. <laughs> blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he has said, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And then he gets to verse 11, and just in case the disciples thought that he was talking to someone else, what does he do? He changes the pronouns. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We probably haven't spent a lot of time studying the lives of the prophets, although some of us may have. But if you've spent any time in Hebrews 11, there's a pretty scary description there of what the lives of the prophets were like. Sawed in two. Chased into caves, living in constant fear for their lives. And Jesus says that this is a life that we would rejoice in because it means that we're following in their footsteps. What do you think the disciples are thinking at this point? What have we gotten ourselves into? At least the Pharisees have the approval of their fellow man. What are we getting? And how does this even make sense? Because doesn't everybody love a peacemaker? But apparently not. Apparently those who strive to make peace and those who demonstrate mercy and those who are pure in heart will draw the wrath of others upon them. And we're going to talk about a little bit about why that is in the next section. But for now, just notice the certainty that persecution will come to those who are living the blessed life, that the life of blessedness is defined by persecution. Why? Because it is the fruit of identification. Jesus is here not asking anything of his followers that he will not walk through himself to the point of death. And so he calls blessed those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake because he himself will be persecuted for righteousness' sake, although he has committed no unrighteousness. So who is most blessed? He is. As Philippians 2 says, he has gone to the lowest place, therefore he is exalted to the highest place. And the most blessed is saying to us, this is what it looks like to be blessed. It means that when you are reviled and when you are persecuted and when evil is, issued, is, is uttered against you falsely on account of me, you can rejoice and be glad because you can know 
that you look like me. The gospel is offensive. It is a stone that makes men stumble. Persecution will come. But persecution is something we can rejoice in for at least three reasons. The first is that when we endure it, it teaches us a new dependence on God, a deeper dependence on God. Any self-reliance that we might still have had is taken away in that moment. Second, it helps us to stifle any friendship that we might feel toward the world. If we thought we could just kind of manage along and just kind of keep our head down and do our own thing, we're going to find out that for those who are earnest in their following of Messiah, that will not be the case. And this doesn't mean that we won't have friends who are unbelievers. Jesus is going to set a pattern for that. He's not going to withdraw from culture. But it means that he never sees those environments as places where everybody's going to slap him on the back forever and tell him he's their favorite person. Because at some point, the reality of who he is is going to rub up against the reality of who they are. So persecution teaches us dependence on God. It teaches us the reality of what kind of friendship we can expect from the world. And it also brings glory to God when it is resisted or withstood gracefully. Think about what suffering does for our witness. It strips away any remaining dependence on self that we might be harboring. And as we identify with Christ in suffering, others identify Christ in us and Christ alone. No self-reliance can be praised by another in that moment. Only the sustaining work of God must be acknowledged in the life of the sufferer. So the blessed life is one in which we suffer willingly. And when Jesus says to rejoice, does he mean that we should enjoy the moment of persecution? No, of course not. He means that we rejoice to know that the outcome of our faith will be great. That a reward is kept for us in heaven, as Peter will say later. So, the blessed life is one that is rooted in poverty and in grief and in submission and in famine. And the blessed life is one that is rooted in compassion, in purification, in reconciliation, and in identification. When we come back after lunch, when you're all nice and sleepy from your food coma and all of the blood has rushed to your stomach, we'll have a chance to see now what a person who embodies these things will do to influence the environments that they enter into. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Beatitudes, for a definition of what it means to be blessed that turns upside down our expectations. We thank you, Lord, that your kingdom is a kingdom in which the last are first. Because the more we know you, the more we become aware of just how low we are. And of the gift that we receive by your spirit. That we are raised. That those who are humbled are lifted up. Thank you, Father, that you have given us positional righteousness through Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.